Hello, folks. Welcome to the first episode of BioBusters Professors Hanging Out Talking Science. And I'm here with Chris Fawner. Hey, everybody. And we're going to talk about the flu. So, what's today's date? Today's date is March 9th, 2018. Correct. We're in the year 2018. Absolutely. And the flu virus uh, has seen its peak in some states, right? It started uh, waning in, in, in some others, but it is still very much a, a large-scale uh, infection in the U.S. at the moment. And I think that's an appropriate uh, first topic to talk about. Sure. So, uh, let's talk about the flu. So, uh, what's, what's the flu, right? So, the flu is a virus. And uh, it infects your upper respiratory tract. Uh, it can descend into the lower respiratory tract. Depending on risk factors. Absolutely. If you ignore symptoms and whatnot, it can descend further down. And if it makes its way into the lungs, that could be very bad news for the human body. It can. It can. And uh, so it's it's a virus. infects primarily your nose, throat, sometimes your lung. And uh, in terms of spread, it is mostly spread by tiny droplets that contain the virus. And, you know, those can be circulating in the, in the environment, right? They can fly out of uh, someone's uh, 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 mouth if they cough, uh, sneeze, or talk even, right? And they can land on uh, uh, a mucosal surface of another person, say someone else's nose, well, or they can... Go ahead. I think we've all been there in the past few months as professors listening to the symphony of coughing coming from our body. <laughs> symphony of coughing. I like that. And, <laughs> and, and, and so, so in addition to, to, uh, sort of that sort of direct transmission mode, uh, these droplets can also land on surfaces and then be picked up by, by, by someone, you know, grabbing a doorknob or, uh, grading an, a, a student's exam as it may be, right? It's probably the biggest risk of being a college professor <laughs> reading exams after you've heard that symphony of coughing absolutely and you know then they can be uh, and then if you touch your nose touch your mouth you can you know essentially uh, uh, contract the virus and uh, do you want to tell us about symptoms so a few of the symptoms we're going to talk a little more about this later on in our broadcast here but some of the common symptoms when you know you've been infected with the flu virus typically you get some kind of cough aches and pains, muscle aches, especially in, of course, muscles and as well as joints. You typically feel worn down, very, very tired, fatigued, as well as sweating and at times a sore throat. And you can have a multitude of causes for these different symptoms, of aches and pains that you feel, that general sense of achiness and feeling worn down, largely because your immune system and the immune cells release certain chemicals known as cytokines that not only are going to help with the inflammation process, but they're going to attack your musculature as well as your joints and actually cause that feeling of achiness, which, as most people will tell you, is not a lot of fun. Um, typically takes about two days, average of one to four days, in which symptoms will arise. And of course, everybody's different. Every individual is a unique little snowflake. So one to four days and these symptoms can vary. Some are very, very drastic. Uh, some people, luckily enough, may not feel uh, too harsh of uh, symptoms whatsoever. Uh, the big thing is that if it's left 
untreated. And this is the one big thing. If you take one thing away from this broadcast, think about always having the flu treated because it can lead to some pretty nasty complications, some of which can be sinus infections. So those... Uh, yeah, I mean, things can go south pretty quickly, essentially, right? Very so, quickly. Yeah. Um, sinus infections, pneumonia, which can be quite bad. Okay, so inflammation of the air sacs in which you diffuse oxygen into your bloodstream. If that happens, um, inflamed, swelling of the air sacs, fluid accumulating, pus, nasty pus accumulating, that can be very bad news. Can even, in very drastic worst case scenarios, lead to heart failure. So myocarditis, which is inflammation of the musculature surrounding the heart. If the flu virus makes its way to your heart tissue and causes that inflammation, it can lead to a disruption of heart function, possibly even heart failure. And those are extreme cases, right? Not not everybody's going to react to the flu in, in that way, right? Exactly. And uh, you're looking at, uh, at, at most risk population, right? So what part of the population is at risk of contracting flu and uh, what part of the population is sort of at most risk of developing extreme complications? Well, that's the thing. Anybody can contract the flu and that is any human being vaccinated versus not vaccinated and any uh, human body can contract. We'll, we'll come back to the vaccine thing. Obviously, it reduces your risk of, exactly. you know, right. But the most high-risk populations will basically be comprised of the elderly population, uh, young children, pregnant women, and any individual who's immune-compromised. And that is simply because with young children whose immune systems aren't fully developed yet, pregnant women who their immunity is obviously going to be kind of shuttled or compromised because they are um, incubating a human being, and anybody who suffers from a uh, disorder that affects their immune system, they're not going to have the capabilities to fight off the flu as well as other populations. And in terms of someone who's immunocompromised, those could be uh, genetic or due to uh, taking medications, say uh, anti-rejection medications, if you've undergone a, a, a transplant. Exactly. That's probably the most high risk uh, in terms of um, being immunocompromised. Uh, also, different disorders such as HIV and eventually leading to AIDS. One of the biggest concerns in that group is developing pneumonia simply due to the fact that you are more at risk for infection right. by either right. flu or cold. And, and you know, these are normally uh, infections that your immune response would just completely handle and take care of. But then in, in this particular weakened immune response, uh, because of T-cell numbers, right? Uh, you, you're more susceptible to a lot of other infections. Exactly. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, this is not an episode on HIV. We could actually do one. We could. Uh, at some point. Uh, you know, it is a virus, though, right? Um, and the influenza virus and the HIV virus do share some minor similarities in terms of how hard it is to develop vaccines for them in a given right. you know, season. Right. Right. Absolutely. But that's a topic for another time. So um, uh, what about uh, disease burden? So, so, so what are the numbers essentially of infections, uh, complications, deaths? So according to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, from 2015 to 2016, approximately 24.5 million illnesses were reported, and 11 million received medical visits. 
So, so what we mean by that is that uh, 11 million people essentially went either to a doctor or an ER or, or it could be an at-home service as well, right? I mean, someone can have a, what was it, a home call for a doctor or something like that? House calls. House calls. Yes. House calls. Very, very famous from a few decades ago. Maybe some righteous and noble doctors still perform that valuable service. I, I, I think they still do it. That's nice to hear. Yeah. yeah. Um, out of those 11 million medical visits, approximately 308,000 were classified as hospitalizations. And, and this is the really, really big sticking point here, 12,000 deaths were reported in terms of individuals afflicted with the flu or flu-associated pneumonia. Okay. So this not, is, not any of the other complications that could lead to death, like myocarditis that we talked about exactly. earlier. Exactly. So this number, the 12,000 could be underreported. Could be underreported yeah. simply because further complications can result due to inf- infection with influenza. Perfect. And uh, so, so what's the reason for having uh, 2015, 2016 data essentially and nothing newer than that? in terms of uh, like CDC numbers, right? So their latest uh, data, complete set of data is 2015, 16, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, one, one, one of the reasons for that is that uh, uh, they still are in the process of calculating and recording data from- oh, simply time. Right, time right, factor, exactly, right? exactly. 2016 to 2017, the data just hasn't been gathered, collected, and analyzed in order to make these right. different right. associations. And we are in the midst of the 2017-18 flu season, right? Yes. So the data from, from this year, which has been a worse than Very uh, bad year, normal, yes. uh, will not be uh, fully uh, available for another uh, year. Another so. year at yeah. least another year, possibly, yeah. too. So um, what about prevention? So we talked about uh, this thing being transmitted by uh, flying or, you know, particles that are in the air, droplets containing the virus or present on a surface, Not right? washing hands, shaking somebody who's sick, you right. know, their hands. Yeah, so try to avoid sick, pe- sick, sick people if you can. Um, if you are sick yourself, stay at home. Don't go to your workplace. Don't go to your school, right? You risk spreading the virus to other individuals. Well, we've even told a student as early as... Two or three weeks ago, one of the uh, A students in class uh, coming to us saying, oh, I'm going to tough it out and go to this exam and go to this lab, and we have to actually say that student stay uh, home. Just stay home, yeah. We yeah. don't want to get sick. Don't no, get exactly. Sick. Yeah. And uh, so so uh, if you are sick, you know, just, just stay home. And uh, but in terms of your prevention long term and in terms of uh, trying to prevent an infection with the flu or even mitigating the effect of the flu, if you do get it, uh, the most effective uh, way to do that is to get vaccinated. That's it. And there is a yearly flu vaccine that uh, is offered fairly cheaply, right? So, you know, some insurance companies will will even uh, pay for it, right? Because it's sort of preventative medicine. I mean, where I live, my apartment complex, they have several times throughout the year, uh, kind of not a clinic, but a nurse or a health professional come in and give free flu shots to everybody who's a resident there. That's kind of neat. It's very neat. So, uh, and, and here at Teal, we have uh, a, a medical professional come in and uh, do a vaccine clinic for uh, faculty or students that want to get the staff as well that want to get vaccinated, right? 
what are some other treatments besides so if you do get the flu you exactly mean. so if you do get the flu and and you go to a medical professional and they confirm through testing that that you actually have the flu and uh, what they will recommend based obviously on your uh, uh, general health, right? Those drugs are not for everyone. And uh, again, we're not giving anybody medical advice. We're just going over uh, general practice here. Uh, we're not medical professionals. We like to pretend we are, but well, yeah. you know, we're doctors, just not that. Not Technically, the, <laughs> we are not the doctor that makes you better, right? Exactly. Uh, uh, so uh, the treatments are uh, Tamiflu. Relenza or Rapavap, and those are uh, drugs available on the market, FDA approved, uh, meaning that uh, you know they've been tested clinically uh, and and they're 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 out on the market, and they should be started right away after symptoms appear. They're not going to make the flu virus disappear. They're not going to make your symptoms disappear. They're simply going to make that period a little bit shorter. Once That's exactly what you said, right? Mitigating and making it as comfortable as possible for the individual who right. has the flu. So they reduce the symptoms by a day or two because they limit the ability of the virus to maintain an infection or exactly. to continue that infection. And that's largely due to replication. Absolutely. The body. Now, your immune response, if you are healthy, your immune response will eventually take care of that, right? It's just a matter of, of, of uh, days shorter with these drugs that would inhibit these viral uh, mechanisms. And, you know, they do have si some si side effects, some minor side effects. A lot of those are just, you know, nausea and vomiting. Uh, so it you should consult with your, uh, with your physician on which uh, treatment is best for you. But, you know, they are, they've been, they are effective at reducing symptoms. So I know that there are a few different types of influenza viruses that are able to infect humans are those the only types uh so so there are uh in circulation uh four different types of viruses a b c and d a and b usually infect humans and cause the season of flu they are responsible for essentially the epidemics uh that you see every every year and the uh pandemics that you see uh, every you know i don't decade or so or maybe a little bit uh, shorter depending on what's going on uh, types c only cause mild disease they don't cause epidemics they're not usually majorly found in 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 uh the your regular season seasonal flu type d is primarily a virus of cattle and it is not known to infect people and on the surface of these viruses, so uh, if you read the news or uh, if you're listening to the news, they'll say, oh, it's an H1N1 virus. Right? letters associated right. with flu virus. In terms of like a type yep. of virus, right? So on the surface of the virus, there are a bunch of molecules. Most of them are proteins, right? And actually probably maybe all of them are proteins. Proteins. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe some uh, carbohydrate groups linked right. to them, but largely protein. And 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 these uh, uh, proteins on the surface of, of, of the virus, uh, obviously they've been named, and uh, one of the most abundant are proteins called hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, and that's where the H and N 
uh, come in. So there's about 18 different hemagglutinin molecules that can be found on the surface of a virus and about 11 or so neuraminidase molecules that can be found on the surface of a virus. So let's say you have uh, hemagglutinin 2 and neuraminidase 3, you'd be an H2 and 3 uh, virus. That's what makes it, I wouldn't necessarily say dangerous, but that's what makes it at times such a hard type challenge of, a challenge to treat and tackle each of these different strains right. of the flu virus simply because of these proteins that are they're, on the surface. They're different on different surfaces. So it's hard to have a essentially a flu vaccine that is a catch-all flu vaccine because you would have to vaccinate against all these possible combinations, right? Mm -hmm. So and and type V type B lineages uh, are either one or two. They can be either a Yamagata virus or a Victoria virus, but they're not as common in terms of the uh, pandemics or epidemics as the type A viruses, the H and the N, so to speak. Most year vaccines are H1N1 or H3N2, and then they'll pick one or two of the B lineages, right? So vaccines are a combination that would vaccinate against four or so, uh, three, four different viruses, right? And the reason being is that uh, you can't really predict with 100% accuracy what the next year's flu virus is going to be. Although they do try. They oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They get these they, vaccines they, uh, ready yeah. in a way where they're using some type of prediction, scientifically based, that allows them to hopefully use this kind of shotgun approach in terms right. of making vaccines. Obviously, this past year, the vaccines that were made, it's been quite challenging for the vaccines to work at as solving this flu dilemma. Or, or high, high efficacy, right? Exactly. So I think uh, I read a, a story that came out of the CDC maybe a week or two ago where they were talking about uh, how the vaccine this year is close to maybe 50 60 percent efficient or efficacy rate in children mm -hmm. but less in adults for some reason and um so the the challenge is obviously that it takes months to put to make these vaccines the production process that we have for vaccines today is a very long process right so uh, you have to start making the vaccines before any epidemics or pandemics start happening so you can't really know which virus is going to be in circulation exactly so i think one of it's a nice segue from this past topic into the next major topic and maybe one of the first misconceptions associated with getting a vaccine is that when you get a flu vaccine, the common question that a patient would ask a doctor is, why don't you have immunity, immunity for, life? for life? Right. So we, we, we've had a couple uh, students and uh, people give us questions ahead of time that they would like to uh, have answered about influenza. And uh, what we're going to do is uh, at the end of the episode, we're going to give you an email and if you have any questions about a particular topic, uh, email us in and we'll, we'll be sure to address them. And if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear as well, we can do that. But uh, yeah, so uh, let, let's get back to uh, immunity for life. So 
The first thing, and I'll tackle the kind of physiology aspect of it and then toss it over to you, Delbert. Um, what is immunity? So how does your body fight off different infections and pathogens? Well, immunity is actually made up of both a very fast, short-term response, as well as more of a long-term defense mechanism against different types of infections. So, when so and those are so sometimes referred to, well, not sometimes, always, innate immunity and adaptive, and adaptive immunity. immunity, sometimes referred to as acquired immunity. Exactly. So with your innate immune responses, that's the kind of first line of defense, okay? Whenever a pathogen is going through the infection process of the human body, this is going to involve not only different physiological barriers like the skin and even that nasty mucus that your sinuses and respiratory tract are going to produce, but also the white blood cells. So the pathogen comes in, tries to establish an infection, and your innate immunity is mobilized via your white blood cells. Afterwards, what you're going to have is your acquired or your adaptive immunity establishing what are called memory cells, also called antibodies, in order to... Well, antibodies are proteins. Oh, yes, yes, of course. But um, what that's going to allow for is long-term immunity to be established so that in case you are infected with that specific pathogen again in the future, your immune system is able to tackle it, fight it off, and destroy that pathogen in your body a lot faster than it did the first time. And usually a stronger response as well. So uh, immune responses that uh, get rechallenged, or essentially a memory response is usually quicker and as well uh, stronger. So that leads into the kind of next topic of discussion is what is actually a vaccine? Like what do vaccinations do? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the concept of vaccination is that it will give your immune response uh, or your, your, your immune mechanisms in your body a simple tasting or a taste test, if you if you will. I like to think of it almost like a training regimen for the immune system. Sure, yeah. Everybody, that. and you've made fun of me for this before, but um, I grew up with the Rocky movies, and everybody knows the training <laughs> regimen, running up the stairs, uh, doing one-armed push-ups, which I wish I could do. But vaccines are going to train your immune system right. in order to fight off the infection when it happens soon, naturally. When it happens naturally. Right. So uh, a vaccine is simply tasting. Then. So what, what you would do in most vaccines is introduce uh, either a component of the virus or a virus that has been weakened or attenuated or destroyed in a way where it cannot actually cause an infection. And then uh, you train the immune response to essentially see it, uh, make those memory cells and antibodies against it. And then when it actually does happen through a natural infection, you'd be uh, ready to fight it off. It'll be sort of your second round of that infection rather than first time seeing it in, in terms of your immune response. And right? it's developed with the goal of when you're first subjected and you're being infected by this influenza virus, the body is able to mobilize its defenses a lot faster, right. less symptoms, and thus less likely to lead to any nasty complications that we talked about before. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, the reason you don't actually have immunity for life is that the virus changes over time. It simply mutates, right? So uh, it, what happens with a lot of these viruses is when they start replicating, when they start dividing, they make small changes over time. It's not intentional. I 
maybe they make is, is a weird way of saying it, right? It's not an intentional. Mm-hmm. Mutations are random. And what happens over time is that the genetic composition of the virus changes slightly. Now, that may, that is not necessarily a big deal, right? Like, because immunity that you have uh, against it uh, might still be sort of cross-protective or slightly protective, right? But what happens every once in a while, there's a drastic change, and then you have uh, either a completely different strain of the virus or different enough that your memory responses are no longer adequate. And so that process of the virus changing slightly over time is called antigenic drift. And an antigen is simply a molecule that causes an immune response. Exactly. And, you know, think of the uh, proteins on the surface of that virus. Those are antigens, right? Mm-hmm. So antigenic drift is essentially small changes over time where your natural antibodies are no longer working. So what's the difference between antigenic drift and antigenic shift? Antigenic shift is a major change that is sudden, very quick, and happens very drastically and changes the virus essentially uh, uh, in a very drastic way. It's not a minor change. It's not just a different variant of the virus. It's completely essentially a, a, a combination of new material, right? And what happens with a lot of the antigenic shifts is a combination of a human virus with an animal virus. And what that does is create a third new virus that's a combination of both animal and human components. And as a result of that, it is completely new and foreign to the human body. Which means that there's very, very little, if at all, natural immunity. Oh, absolutely. Found in yeah. Humans. yeah. And uh, this only happens occasionally. It is not a common way for new viruses of the flu to occur, right, or to, to come about, which is why these pandemics, you know, swine flu, bird flu, things like that, those come, you know, once every decade or so, you know, sometimes even slower than that, uh, but usually not not yearly. The yearly uh, changes in viruses are due to that antigenic drift, which is, you know, small, minor changes over time. That's great. Uh, we have a few other kind of subtopics that we're going to maybe do in sort of a Rapid fire question and answer sure. session, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Know, so we, we uh, talked about vaccines, right? So exactly. we, we had a couple questions about vaccines, yeah. you know, how they're produced. Uh, you know, it's a process. It takes months. We're not going to get into the mechanisms of it. But essentially, you've got uh, uh, regulatory bodies and uh, scientists uh, that know way more about the flu than you and I, honestly, right? And, you know, they, they, uh, they predict what the major type of uh, strain of virus is going to be predominant or mostly dominating next year's flu season. And they come up with a couple options. Obviously, they create a cocktail. So, you know, your chances of being right are are increased. And that's what goes in those vaccines. So sometimes, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well in the past few years teaching, I've had dozens, if not hundreds of students email me and say, oh, I have a cold or I have the flu. And I think what one of the more common misconceptions is what exactly classifies a cold versus a flu. Well, number one. Well, they're different viruses. They're caused by different viruses, okay? They both can cause and lead to respiratory illnesses. Absolutely. Like you said, 
caused by different viruses. Colds are generally more frequent because there are so many different types of viruses, uh, numbering greater than 200, that can potentially cause a cold. And, and those are called rhinoviruses? Rhinoviruses, right? exactly. Uh, some of the common symptoms, and this is especially something that students should write down so that when they type these emails <laughs> up to us, you can at least be accurate and precise in saying whether you have a cold or a flu. When you're comparing cold symptoms versus common flu symptoms, with a cold, it's more of a more gradual onset. With a cold, very, very rare that it leads to any type of fever. And here's probably the biggest thing. When you have a cold, you have little to no achings in terms of your joints and your musculature, as well as a rare headache and rare chills. Compare so you do get some aching, right? They're just slight, not, very, not, very not, slight. not as severe as you would with the flu. I mean, anybody who's had the, a bad flu in the past few weeks or months can definitely tell you in state one of the most uncomfortable aspects is it literally feels like your entire body is throbbing because right. of that infection by the right, influenza right, right. virus. And the fever is also a usually a, 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 what do you call it, a marker or a demarcator? What, what's the, what uh, am demarcation I? Right, or a demarcator, right. yes. So uh, that's why, by the way, uh, vaccines for uh, the flu are more common also than the cold in terms of numbers, right? You, exactly. you, you mentioned viral numbers mm-hmm. uh, or different kinds of viruses. You know, if there's over 200 for the cold, Imagine it's pretty tough to treat. Yes. Yeah, Im- imagine trying to do a vaccine for uh, something that will cover you know two hundred or so uh, different viruses, right? Yeah, it's close to improbable, if not very impossible. right, impossible. Yep. So, is the um, why do we need to get vaccinated every single year, and how fast can I expect a vaccine to kick in? So, we talked about antigenic shift, right, and antigenic drift, and these small or large mutations that can happen over time of the flu virus. The short answer is that every year it's a a slightly different flu strain or a completely different flu strain. And as a result of that, you need a vaccine every year. And the vaccine is not protective right away. You will not immediately be uh, protected against uh, uh, getting a flu virus. It takes about a week or two averages 10 to 14 days or so. And part of the reason is that you need that second arm of the immune response to kick in, that adaptive part, acquired part of the immune response to kick in. And for you to get there, you usually need about, uh, you know, seven to 10 days or so. So it is uh, protective, will offer either complete or partial protection, but it takes it takes some time. Okay, great. Um, why exactly... And this is when we're going to mention a little bit about one or two papers. But why is the flu considered to be seasonal? So why is it that I'm more at risk to get the flu between, uh, let's say, November going into March compared to the other months? So it turns out uh, the main reason for that is humidity and temperature. So, uh, uh, obviously, people knew that the flu virus was seasonal, right? And we knew that it started at, you know, uh, say November, December, peaked in February, and then started waning from there. It's just insane for me to think that up until 10, 15 years ago, it was still not exactly known 
Why? Well, people speculated, you know, temperature may have something to do with it. Humidity may have something to do with it. And, uh, you know, a bunch of papers came out that actually uh, proved that. And uh, if you think of the flu virus, the flu virus is present in the environment year long. Mm -hmm. It is in the environment all the time. Now, if you decrease the temperature, the flu virus is more likely to survive. Meaning if you if the temperature is high, it's more likely to the flu virus itself, it's more likely to not be infectious. So just like thermal tolerance mechanisms. Pretty much, yeah. pretty much. Uh, so to speak, yeah. Not, not necessarily those exact mechanisms, but yeah. And 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 the other thing is is humidity. The drier the conditions are the more likely those droplets are going to be floating in the air and moving about. And, you know, think about it. If, if it gets uh, more humid outside, these tiny droplets that contain the flu virus would pick up more moisture, get heavy, and then drop down drop to the drop ground. Down to, exactly. transmission. Yep. Absolutely. So it turns out it was, it was uh, an issue of, of humidity and low temperatures. And uh, for those of you that are interested in reading the papers, we can uh, post them in the... Uh, in the show log, uh, once we post this to the website, we can post uh, links to the PDFs. But uh, we found these two papers. One was published in uh, 2007 in PLOS, uh, PLOS Pathogens, mm-hmm. and it, it deals with transmission of influenza A viruses. And then a few years later, in 2012, they investigated influenza B, B and they ice and they performed that study in uh, guinea pigs right and that was published in the journal of virology it was the same uh, senior author on both papers so the first paper is influenza virus transmission is dependent on relative humidity and temperature that's the plus pathogens 2007 paper the second one is transmission of influenza b viruses in the guinea pig, and that's the General of Virology 2012 paper. And from both, essentially, the takeaway uh, message, the take-home message is low temperature, low humidity increases transmission and survivability, essentially, of that flu virus. So another reason to hate winter. Another reason to hate winter. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, just to wrap up with a couple uh, final questions here, uh, we got a couple questions on can the vaccine give me the flu can i still get the flu if i got vaccinated and does the vaccine cause autism so how about we uh do can the vaccine give me a flu okay cool so basically no because when you are injected with that vaccine you are basically being injected with an inactivated form of that virus. Inactivated simply means that that particular virus, that influenza virus, is no longer able to cause disease. Now, vaccines will not give you the flu, but you can at times confuse, people who get the vaccine can actually confuse the mild side effects associated with the vaccine with the flu. And those are very mild side effects. Very mild. Absolutely. Much much milder and uh, better handled by a person compared to the full-blown symptoms seen in somebody with the flu. And we we, we have to be very careful in, 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 in telling folks that if you get the vaccine, you can still potentially get the flu. It's because these sure things are not 100% absolute. Yes. Right. And uh, so the last question, and I'll have, you, I'll have you answer that. Can vaccines cause autism? So this is a big thing, and this is something that not only 
I see misreported in my hometown where I come from, but you at times see this sensationalized in um, media as well as social media posts. So the other big danger of Facebook and the reason why I don't enjoy it very much anymore. And how everybody's an expert these days. Um, everybody yeah, is a medical health expert and everybody absolutely. believes right. just by putting a... I saw it on a website somewhere. Exactly. It must be true. 140 character post on Twitter or Facebook. Didn't they might, increase that? Uh, they might have to. Yeah, yeah. I think that the two, 200, 220, I think they increased that. I'm not a Twitter file. So well, neither, uh, neither, neither am I. But, you know, I think I read something about that. I'll stick to Facebook and I'm two seconds away from deleting that account anyway. But back to the topic at hand. Um, the short quick, answer quick is answer. vaccines do not cause autism. autism. It was a very, very bad um, discredited paper from about two decades ago now by a charlatan known as Andrew Wakefield. I like that <laughs> charlatan, one. Yeah, I don't, I don't get to use it very much. But this charlatan by the name of Well, Andrew, maybe I'll ask you about him every every time we do an episode. You, you get to use that word often. Then. Oh, I would love it. I would disparage him <laughs> over and over again. But basically, two decades ago, using a very, very small sample size and using what we call experimental bias, he found a correlation Between, not causation. Not causation, but he found a correlation with a very small sample size between children who were suffering from some type of autism spectrum disorder and the fact that they received a um, vaccine. What was the vaccine's name again? Uh, the, it was the um, MMR, but MMR, there, there were yes. two different MMR vaccines, yes. one produced by the one company, the other by, the, by a second company, right? And, and what eventually came out was he basically looked – for the children in which to establish these correlations in, which, of course, right. is an inherent he, he bias. He faked the data, absolutely. He faked yeah. the data, and he actually had connections with the companies. The companies were paying him in a way that, in no small uh, words, they wanted him to find this specific connection between right. autism and vaccine. And he's been discredited. His license has been taken away. He's been, I think, sued maybe a couple times. He's I been don't sued. Um, Uh, his license is gone. If you ever look this paper up, it's kind of funny because it has in bright red font across the redacted, or, redacted or retracted. Yeah, you can't and even read the actual paper. Eh? You can't because you have to read underneath this red font. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much of that. I highly suggest anybody who has even an inkling that they would not want to vaccinate their child due to this false fake news information or any of the other crap you see on television these days you know and jenny mccarthy and her blog or media presence uh, i yes. mean social media and celebrities giving um medical advice is probably one of the biggest dangers to society uh, yeah. in the present day yeah, absolutely. Um, so at the end of the day vaccines do not cause autism get your children vaccinated protect them absolutely it's the best way to do things right right Okay, so I think that does it. I think that's a good uh, uh, first uh, episode here. Any Anything else you want to say about the flu or vaccines that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Just get a vaccine. That's the easiest way to protect yourself from these nasty symptoms. Yep, get a yep. vaccine. It's a few minutes out of your day. Trust me, it's going to save you a lot of literal aches and pains throughout the year. Fantastic. And... Um, 
I guess we're, we're, we're wrapping up here. And uh, uh, if you would like to email us any questions about any topic you would like us to discuss here, uh, science-related, uh, uh, or if you would like to suggest topics, our email is thebiobusters at gmail.com. That is T-H-E-B-I-O-B-U-S-T-E-R-S at gmail.com. You've been listening to BioBusters, professors hanging out, talking science. Thank you. Goodbye.